give it up to Jesus. Hallelujah. We're so glad to have you in the house today. Pastor John will be back with us this Wednesday night. And uh, we're looking forward to, to what the Lord's got to, to say to us here in this place today. Are you ready? Why don't you uh, open your Bible or your electronic biblical device to Mark chapter 10. And uh, we're going to dig in today. I want to ask you a question today. Who defines you? And I uh, hope you all don't mind, of course, with the, the, the construction that's going on here. And we thank you for pardoning our appearance. But uh, uh, I thought, do I want to be up there or do I want to be down here? And I want to be, I want to be with you all today, all right? Uh, I, I should have worn my platform shoes today, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> hey, all right. How do you define yourself? How do others define you? And how does God define you? So we want to go ahead and dig into this today. Who is defining you? Now, uh, one interesting thing is, is your, uh, before we look at Mark chapter 10, there, there's, there, there are certain ways that people look at themselves. And I want to go ahead and uh, touch a few of those. Uh, they, they often can look at themselves by, by the status of their past treatment, how they've been treated in their life in the past, or their relational status. Their health status, or sometimes health or lack of health, uh, emotional status, their addiction status, and their economic status. A lot of people uh, would define themselves by how they've been treated in the past, their past treatment status. Uh, they, they would identify themselves as having been abused, either emotionally, physically, sexually abused. A lot of people, and, and you know, it's interesting, over in, uh, in the Old Testament, there's a reference to the grandson of King Saul named Mephibosheth. And, and, and the story goes that uh, as his nurse went to pick him up at the age of five years old and bring him to safety, he was dropped. And as the result of being dropped, he was lame for the rest of his life. And, and I believe that, that there's a lot of people that, that fall into the category of, of being uh, purposefully abused. But there is, there, there's a lot of people that, that fall into the category of what I call being dropped. Where somebody meant to do you good. They meant to help you. They meant to do something positive to you. But they accidentally dropped you. They, they may not have been fully equipped themselves to give you what you needed. So you, you, you might have been dropped accidentally by somebody who really wanted to do you good in your life, but in their good intentions still ended up doing harm to you. So there's a lot of various backgrounds that, that you might come from that affect how you define yourself. People that define themselves according to, to their relational status. Well, I'm married. I'm happily married. I'm unhappily married. Or I'm single. Or, or you know, I, I, I'm divorced. Or uh, I'm just no good at this love thing. People define themselves in so many various ways when it comes to relationships. People define themselves according to their health. Some people say, I'm healthy and strong and full of life. Some people say, well, I'm a, I'm a gym rat. Some people say, I'm the antithesis of a gym rat. And, uh, uh, all right, moving right along. Come on, somebody. But, but, but then also, you, you've, got, you've got people that, that are sick and identify themselves, define themselves based on their sickness. You've got people, a lot of times, that, that, that would have a condition. Uh, if they had cancer, they would talk about my cancer or they're talking about my disability or my something. Uh, you know, they're defining themselves according to that in their life. A lot of times, emotional status is a way that people define themselves. You've got situations where people are happy-go-lucky or sad or dark and depressed. Some people live in such a dark world. You can see it. It affects the, the, the way they do their makeup. It affects the way that they dress. I'm telling you the truth. You can tell by the music people listen to. Their whole world view is dark. Come on now. People define themselves by their addiction, their, their vices, things that they have an issue with in their life. You know, they're, they're always talking about themselves as being the alcoholic, as being the pothead, as being the crackhead, as being the porn addict. 
Some people always identify themselves according to their economic status. You know, they're, they're either rich and well off or middle class or they're poor. So poor they couldn't afford the last two letters. Come on, somebody. So people define themselves different ways. You define yourself in a different way from what's how someone else may define themselves. But I want to read something out of Mark chapter 10 that's going to challenge you today. Look at um, uh, verse 46 of Mark 10. It says this. Now they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples in a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man and saying to him, be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. And then Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. There's one little nugget in here that if you're not paying attention to it, you can go right past it. And I want to tell you what it is today. The fact that when Bartimaeus heard that Jesus was calling him, he called out to Jesus. And when he realized he got Jesus' attention, what did he do? The scripture says that he threw aside his garment. That which identified him as the beggar on the side of the road. That old ratty thing that identified himself as the poor blind beggar. He set that aside. Which was a statement of his faith. Because as he was going to Jesus, by the fact that he set that aside, he made a statement of faith right there. He said, this is the last day that I'm a poor blind beggar. And I think there's somebody in the house that said, this is the last day that I'm going to define myself the way I've been defining myself. And I'm going to go ahead and leave that old garment aside now. And I'm going to go to Jesus and I'm going to let Jesus define me. I'm going to let the power of God working in my life define me rather than how things have always been. Because I want to tell you today, good news, that just because it's always been this way, doesn't mean it has to be that way anymore. Come on now. Hallelujah. Mm. Yeah. So he, he laid aside his condition, that, that which represented his condition, his status, as, as the, the blind, poor man on the side of the road. Hallelujah. And you... And I can lay aside anything that has defined us today that is not in alignment with the way that God defines us. You know, the scripture says, Romans chapter 6, verse 11, this is a very interesting thing. The apostle Paul tells us that we should reckon ourselves as being dead to sin and alive to God. How do you reckon yourself? How do you esteem yourself? How do you think about yourself? The Bible says something about that. You should reckon yourself as being dead to sin and alive to God. Which is good news for, for, for those who are, are, are struggling, wanting to do the right thing and having a hard time to doing the right thing. You know what, when you, when you want to please God and you want to do right and, and you find yourself uh, more easily getting into the wrong than into the right. No, I, nobody knows anything about that around here. Come on. But, but, but in that situation, it is easy for you to fall into the trap of reckoning yourself the exact opposite of the way the Bible tells you to. Rather than reckoning yourself as dead to sin and alive to God. Because it's so easy for you to fall into that thing. You start reckoning yourself as alive to that thing. Whatever that thing is you're trying to stay away from. And dead to God. Say, well, if it was the other way around, it should be easier than this. But the Bible tells you how to think about yourself. How to reckon yourself. How to define yourself as a believer. I'm not dead to God and alive to sin. I'm alive to sin and dead to God. And if I believe that. And if I reckon myself that way. And if I act that way. Think that way. Talk that way. Then I believe that that very thing is going to manifest in my life. And rather than this thing. This vice. This sin. Whatever it is. Having victory over me in my life. I'm going to have some victory over it. 
Hallelujah. How do you reckon yourself? The Bible tells you how. What do you acknowledge about yourself? The Bible says over in Philemon chapter 1 verse 6 that the sharing of our faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Think about that. The acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Which means that it must be all right, if the Bible says so, for you to acknowledge that there's good things in you. Now, it would not be all right if you acknowledge that there's good things in you because you're really a hot shot and you're cute and all that. You'd be off track if you were thinking that way. But if you realize that the good things you've got in you have nothing to do with how cute you are or how, how good, good you are at this or, or anything Anything that has to do with you, but it has everything to do with Jesus dwelling in you. Then you got things on the right track. I can acknowledge there's good things inside of me because I'm in Christ. And there's good things in him. So if he's in me, I've got good things in me. And it's all right to acknowledge that and to look at yourself and to find yourself that way. As, as a matter of fact, so, so many people are afraid to say anything positive about themselves because they don't want to get into pride. But, uh, you know, I heard a, Apostle Scales, who just ministered for us a few weeks back, did a masterful job. But years back, I heard him say something that I never forgot about humility. And oftentimes, people get mixed up when it comes to humility and pride and, and where the line is. But he made a statement that I'll never forget, and I'm going to pass it on to you right now. That humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Oh, come on. Somebody's going to get on the way home today. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about you less. And thinking about others more. Come on. Somebody got it right there. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm a believer in this. That, that there, there's two, two extremes. And there's something that's true and balanced that's right in the middle. On, on one extreme is pride. That's somebody who believes more about themselves than they ought to believe thinks about themselves more than they ought to think. The Bible warns about that in Romans 12, 3, that we should not think more highly than we ought to think about ourselves. But the other extreme of pride is not humility. The other extreme is what I call false humility. That's where people, in the name of being humble, are thinking and believing less about themselves than they ought to. Rather than thinking more than what the truth is, they're thinking less than what the truth is. But right in the middle of the road is what's called the truth. That's where real humility is. Where if God says it about me, it's true. Just because God said it, whether I feel like it or not, if God said it, it's true. Because I'm submitted to what God says. He's right about everything. And if he said it, it's got to be right. Mm-mm. And so you see, that's, that's where we need to be. Not thinking more highly of ourselves, not thinking less highly of ourselves, but re- being right in the middle. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And what, what's the key thing? It's called agreeing with God. Agreeing with God. Acknowledging the good things that are in us in Christ. That means if God puts something good in there, we're agreeing with him that those are good things. We're agreeing with him that those are things that he's given to us. Those are things he's deposited into us. So we're recognizing that. But there's a danger in disagreeing with God. As a matter of fact, you don't need to look very far. You just got to think about the children of Israel. As they were approaching the promised land. Mm-hmm. And God had commissioned them to, to go into the land. And, and so, so they, uh, he, God actually said, this is the land which I give you. And so what they did, they gathered together 12 guys to go and check it out. They called them the 12 spies. They went to spy out the land. And so these guys went into this promised land and they came back, two of them saying, oh, yeah, God's with us. We got this. Here we go. Come on. And 10 of them saying, oh, boy, there's some giants over there. There's some big dudes in the land. They're bigger than we are. And it's interesting because how they define themselves at that moment in time was in opposition to the way God defined them. You had two men who agreed with God, said, we're well able. God's given it to us. I don't have to worry about these guys. They're, they're, they're bread for us. I mean, we're just going to go ahead and eat some bread when we go in there. We're going to go ahead and, and take what's ours. But, but the scripture says in the last verse of Numbers 13, the, the way that they define themselves, 
the, the majority of the people and the majority of those spies that went in to spy out the promised land. They said we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their side too. So not only did they define themselves, they just knew exactly how everybody else was defining them too. Anybody been there besides me? You know, it's not always that thought about you yourself. It's I know for sure that everybody else sees me this way too. Don't look innocent now. There's no temptation taking us but such as is common to man. So anytime the enemy tries to say, well, you're the strange one, you're the odd one, and, you know, nobody else has to deal with this, only you. You know he's lying, 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 lying to you. But anyway, their definition of themselves, the, the way they saw themselves, they saw themselves as grasshoppers, and that kept them from going into the promised land. That kind of mentality, that kind of disobedience with, to God. Because literally, what was the bottom line? Saying, Lord, I know you say otherwise, but I know better. Lord, I know you said this about me, but that's not what I believe about me. I believe something different about me. And by being in a position where you are putting your definition of yourself on a higher level than God's definition of you, by so doing and by contradicting God's definition, you are actually stifling your destiny. By so doing, you're stifling your destiny because it was the destiny of God for these people, these children of Israel, to get into the promised land. However, so many of them did not get there. And the reason is because they believed their own definition of themselves more than they believed God's definition of them. Now, how do others define you? You know, it's interesting that some people's attempts to define you actually insinuate the exact opposite of the way it really is. You know, I, I can think of two examples in Scripture where, 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 where you see this working through the devil himself. One place is in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And, and if you remember the story, you see the serpent in the tree talking to Eve and trying to... Trying to sell her on eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what did he say to her? He, he said that if you eat this, you will be like God. Now what's wrong with that statement? What's wrong with that statement is that Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 already tells me that man was already created in the image of God. So here's the thing. Here's the enemy trying to insinuate that you're not like God, but if you eat this, then you become like God. Where if somebody knew better, they could have said, you can't make me any more like God than I already am because I'm created in his image. Do you see that? And it's amazing how so many times... The devil himself, and the, he's the tempter, and we know what he does. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the tempter. We know how he works. But also, in, in his attempts to work through other people in trying to define you and limit you and put you in that little box where, where this is who you are and don't you dare try to get out of it. Come on now. And so what, what he'll do is he'll look to insinuate Things about you that are really, in God's view of things, the exact opposite of the way it really is. Think about this. Jesus himself is getting baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. The Holy Ghost descends out of heaven like a dove. And God the Father speaks from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. How many of you remember that? What is the next thing that happened? The next thing that happened after Jesus heard the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved son. That's my boy. Now, Jesus goes up into a mountain next to be tempted of the devil. And what's the first thing the devil says to him when he approaches him? He said, if you be the son of God. Right after the father just told him that he was. Right after in front of witnesses, God spoke clearly so that everybody could hear and everybody could know, this is my son. And what does the devil say? If you be the son of God. How many of you have had a point in your life 
where after something has taken place, where you should have known that thing better than you know your own name. And then here comes something to try to steal it from you. Isn't that just like the enemy? And Jesus told us that in the parable of the sower, that the devil comes to steal the word once it gets planted. And he comes immediately to do it. Just like he did with Jesus. He came immediately. The very first thing he brought up, he wanted to steal away the word that God the Father had just spoken to him. So I want you to know today, you know he's coming for it. You know that thief, that stinking thief is coming for that word. Don't let him take it out of you. Don't let him try to redefine you in any other way. You are who God says you are. And do not for a minute allow yourself to be defined otherwise. You know, we're often defined by people according to assumptions. <laughs> False first impressions. You know, there, there, there can be true first impressions. There can also be false first impressions. I, I, I mean, I can't tell you, you know, and, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know who it was, so I don't mind telling the story. But, but Pastor John, you know, would re- refer to something every now and then uh, of him uh, just uh, c- coming across somebody uh, who's part of the church body, and then they would say to him, "Pastor, are, are we all right? Are we good?" And he said, "Well, yeah, of course we are. Ain't nothing wrong with us. What's the matter? Well, you see, uh, uh, we were in the foyer a few weeks ago, and you walked right past me." And you didn't look at me, you didn't smile at me, didn't nothing. So I just want to make sure we're good. And pastor said, boy, I just don't even have any recollection of walking right by you. So you can be, you, you can be sure of this. I, I must have had some business on my mind or something. So, you know, you got to say like to God, Father, it's not personal, it's just business, you know. <laughs> don't take it personally. But, but, but it's interesting how we can assume things and have false first impressions. And then besides that, sometimes others try to define you by outdated information. I feel like preaching today. Come on, give me a high five, man. All right. Outdated information. When people want to look at you based on the person you once were rather than the person you are now. And going by the assumption that because it was that way, that it's likely still that way and will always be that way. But I want somebody to know the devil is a liar. Because just because it might have been that way doesn't mean it's that way today. And doesn't mean it's going to be that way tomorrow because there's a factor you need to consider. There's somebody who's an author and a finisher. Somebody who's getting something started who just doesn't get things started and drop it. But no, he brings it to completion. He's the author and the finisher. He's the alpha and the omega. So there's a factor that must be considered that just because it might have been this way at one time doesn't mean it's that way today and doesn't mean it's going to always be that way. You need to have some updated information about me. Hallelujah. Go to Acts chapter 13. Hallelujah. Acts 13. And this is a very interesting example about how two people in the church, members of the body of Christ, how one had a view of the other that at the moment was a reasonable view because this person had not proven themselves trustworthy. And so uh, this is interesting. We're going to dig into this for a few minutes here. Acts 13. We're going to talk about John 
who is also known as Mark. This is not John the beloved apostle. This is not John the Baptist. This is not John who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, and the Gospel of John. This is a different guy. John, who also was named Mark, who in some places might be referred to as John Mark. All right? Acts 13, verse 5. And when they, that's Paul and his missionary team, arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. So John, also called Mark, was their assistant. He was helping them on the trip. Now look at verse 13. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perge and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So we see John starting the trip as their assistant, and then we see before too long, John jumped the ship. Now, go a few more chapters further to Acts chapter 15. And we're going to follow this story a little bit further. Acts chapter 15. So we see this. John, we'll call him John Mark, because he, he went by both names, got started on the mission team as an assistant. And then it might have got too hot. And, uh, you know, maybe the persecution got heavy and maybe he got scared and he went back home to mom. Whatever happened. Now, Acts 15, verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back. And visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. So Paul, because the only impression, the only definition that he had to work with of Mark was that Mark was the guy who got something started. And then once he felt the heat a little bit, he ran home. So when Barnabas brought up the idea of him getting involved in the trip again, Paul said, well, (laughs) he ain't going on my missionary trip. I'll tell you that. And they had such a disagreement that Paul and Barnabas, that though they were partners and traveling together on these missions, split and said, well, if you're insisting on taking him, you go your way. I'm going to take somebody else to go my way. And Paul hooked up with a guy named Silas. But is that how the story ends? Well, I want to read a few things to you that, that, that were written by Paul in some of his later epistles. First of all, Philemon chapter 1 and verse 24, he refers to Mark as one of his fellow laborers. Oh, come on. There's a happy ending here. In the very last chapter of the very last book that Paul wrote before he was martyred for the gospel, 2 Timothy chapter 4, the very same chapter where he was obviously getting ready to go, where he said, I fought a good fight, I finished the course, I've kept the faith, I'm ready to be offered I'm going to get me a crown of life. He's ready to go. These are the last words he's uttering to the church. And what happens in that very same chapter? He said, get Mark and bring him with you for he's useful to me for the ministry. Hallelujah. Just because Mark might have been on Paul's X list way back. He wasn't on the X list anymore. Hallelujah. And so we see here that John, also known as Mark, was not ultimately defined by Paul's initial reluctance about him. Aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad that 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 you don't have to pay for the rest of your life for some of your past mistakes? That that does not have to define you all the way through the rest of your life. It might have defined you at the moment, but it doesn't have to define you for the rest of your days. Isn't it good to know that somebody who was once on the list of no use to me now is useful to me for the ministry? And I want you to realize this, and I believe this with all my heart. And of course, Paul being a man of God and him self 
realizing people can change because Lord knows he changed a whole lot from being one that went to killing Christians to becoming one who multiplied Christians around the world. So he knew firsthand people can change. And so thank the Lord, Paul initially recognized that Mark changed too. Yeah, there might have been one time where he wasn't dependable, but he's dependable now. But I also want you to realize this, that even if Paul never did change his mind, even if Paul always thought once undependable, always undependable. Once, once you're uh, on my list, you're always on my list. I want you to know that even if Paul took that stance with him, that would not have to limit Mark for the rest of his life. Even if people write you off, God's not written you off. Hallelujah. And I want you to know that if you grow and you learn from your mistakes and you grow and you become all that God's called you to be, then you know what? Whether somebody ever recognizes that about you or not, or if they've got you in that little category forever and ever, amen. Well, they may have you in that category, but God doesn't. And whose opinion matters more? Hallelujah. All right. Go to 1 Chronicles 4. Thank you, Lord. 1 Chronicles 4. Some of you have been told things by your family growing up where you're like this and you're always going to be like this. Some have said, well, your granddaddy was this way, your daddy was this way. And you and your boneheaded self going to be the same way. And things that kids hear early in life and have uh, 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 emphasized into them. And, and, and they hear it over and over and over again. It leaves an impression. It leaves a mark. But I want you to know that, that no matter who said what about you, you are not in bondage to those words. First Chronicles chapter four, look at verse nine. It says, now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. And his mother called his name Jabez saying, because I bore him in pain. Now, every baby that's born causes a little bit of pain. So Jabez must have brought on some extra pain, must have been a tough pregnancy or something. But it's interesting that a more literal uh, statement of that. Is, uh, to elaborate on that because I bore him in pain is literally he will cause pain. Imagine you're giving a uh, birth to a baby boy and say he's going to cause pain. I mean, what, what a stigma to start life with. But I tell you, there's hope for anybody because don't forget Moses, when he started life, he was a basket case. Hey, <laughs> little known revelation right there for you. All right. Very little revelation. Uh, but, but, but here is Jabez being referred to as, as being born in pain. And, and literally, mama is saying about him, he's going to cause pain. What a stigma to start life with. But look at verse 10. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory and that your hand would be with me, that you would keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. It's amazing how even though he was born and named with the stigma as one who was going to cause pain, he had enough sense to call out to the God of Israel and saying, Lord, I might have been named this way. I might have this expectation placed on me and on my life. But Lord, I'm going to pray that it would not be that way. As a matter of fact, I'm going to pray for the exact opposite of the very thing, the very curses that people have spoken over me in my life. And God granted him what he requested. So instead of him going through life as one causing pain, he said, Lord, I don't want to cause pain. Keep me from evil so I would not cause pain. And God granted him what he requested. And this is a good case where the man did not live up to his name. Hey, hallelujah. And I want to say to you today, 
that no matter what words have been spoken over you, no matter what curses have been spoken over you. I know we've got people here born in the United States, and I know we've got a whole lot of internationals. And I want to talk to my international people, no matter how much voodoo, hoodoo, no matter what kind of mess people have tried to done to you, I want you to know something. You can't curse what God has blessed. Hallelujah. And you pray to the God of Israel and God can reverse a curse. And see to it that even though people named you one thing, spoke about you one way, had one expectation of you, that's not the way the story has to end. Hmm. Now, how does God define you? I got to tell you, I think we need to go and get renamed by God. You know, in the times of scripture and, you know, some people carry on the tradition today and some people just make up names, you know. I ain't going to get into that, but y'all just use your imagination. But, 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 you know, when it comes to names, I mean, God found a man named Abram and the word Abram, the name Abram means high father. But, but God said, no, no, the, the thing that's defining you as I define you is for you to be called Abraham because Abraham means father of a multitude. And I know you're an old man here without kids, but you're the father of a multitude. And I'll tell you what, isn't that a beautiful thing when God defines you a certain way? Woo, you can be the crazy old man pushing around an empty baby carriage, calling yourself father of a multitude. But you don't mess with God's definition of you. Because you just don't argue with the one who's right about everything. It's as simple as that. If, if, if we just boiled our obedience down to that, that God knows more than me. And he's always right. That, 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 that would help solve a lot of our disobedience issues. If we could just get a hold of that simple fact. Hallelujah. Let God rename you. <laughs> you know, uh, Rachel's uh, last son. She named him Benoni, which is son of my sorrows. But, but Jacob, who we know better, is Israel. Jacob, who used to be the supplanter, but he was named Israel, prevailer with God. And he said, just like my name got changed by God, I'm going to go ahead and change my son's name because I don't want my son being known as son of my sorrow. So he called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And, you know, that's got a good connotation to it. You know, I mean, the idea of the right-hand man, that has some good connotation to it. As a matter of fact, you ever heard of the, the, the son who sits on the right hand of the father? So I'd much rather be son of the right hand than son of my sorrow. Hallelujah. And so, so we, we see God by renaming, redefining a person, redefining their destiny. I remember when, when Jesus was first introduced to Peter and, and, and there was that great catch of fish. When Peter said, I've been all night out fishing and ain't no fish in the lake today. Jesus said, come on and go out one more time. And he did threw the net out, got so much fish. He needed John and James to come and help him out uh, because the nets were breaking. There was so much fish. And what happened? Peter got down on his knees in front of Jesus and said, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, don't fear from now on. You're going to be a fisher of men. So here's Peter defining himself, saying, Lord, I, I, I'd love to do something with you. I see your power, but I know me. I'm a sinful man. And what did Jesus say? <laughs> Jesus said, from now on, you're going to do a different kind of fishing. Jesus defined him right at the moment where his definition of himself would have disqualified him. Jesus defined him in a way that qualified him. Hallelujah. How does God define you? You know, God sees you as a new creature. We need to realize that. If you're born again today, if you're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, God sees you as a new creature. And that's one of the things that we just need to get right off because so many of us are still battling with, with some dumb things that we did B.C. You know what B.C. means? And I'm not talking about this nonsense they do these days, talking about B.C.E. before the common era. I ain't talking about that. B.C. still means before Christ. Hello. 
So you might have done some things before Christ that haunt you and some things that mess with you and some things that, that, that the enemy would used to still try to define you according to that. But I want you to know if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a new creature. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. The Bible says in Galatians six fifteen, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. When it comes to the way God sees you, God don't see circumcision, uncircumcision, Jew, Gentile. God don't see all the things, all the categories and all the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the ethnic groups, uh, racial lines that the man uses to define people. God doesn't see people according to that. God sees people according to, are you a new creation or are you not a new creation? And if you're not, you can be today. Hallelujah. That's the way God sees us. Now, one thing about the way that God defines us, and this is amazing, is that God does not define you by where you are today, but God defines you by how he ultimately sees you and the ultimate calling he's got on your life. Hallelujah. Think about this. That over in the book of Job, in the last chapter of Job, God said that he wanted Job to pray for his three friends because Job had spoken the thing that was right concerning him. Now, if you read the whole book, and we don't have time to get into it, but if you read the whole book of Job, you realize that here is God saying that Job has spoken the thing that is right concerning me. But when you read it, you say that not everything Job said was right concerning the Lord. So you say, well, how, how does this fit? Well, it fits real easily. Because here's the thing. God was not speaking about Job based on his, his mess at the moment. God was speaking about Job, about how things ultimately ended up. Because Isaiah 46.10 gives us a secret about the way that God works. It says that God declares the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done. So think about the way that God operates. That when God says something. God, God's not talking about the beginning. Or even the middle of the road. God already sees it at the end of the road. God already sees the finished product. And so you see so many times. God talking about something. As though we're, all, we're already done. When to you it looks like it's just getting started. Or half baked. But God's speaking about it in a way as though it were already done. So that's why he's talking about Job as having spoken of me what is right. When, when right in the same context, you see Job saying, oh, I am vile and I laid my hand over my mouth. So you see even Job realizing he said some stupid things. And Job chapter 42, right in that same chapter, 42 verse 8 is where God said that, that, uh, that Job had spoken the thing that was right concerning him. But right in the same chapter in verse 3, Job said, I have uttered what I have not understood. But the great thing is that God sees you not according to your mistakes along the way, but God sees you according to how you ultimately end up. Hallelujah. God defined Abraham not by his mistakes along the way and the, the time where he said, Sarah is my sister because he was scared of people and all that nonsense, you know. But, but we read Romans chapter 4 and it says that he was not weak in faith and he did not consider his own body and he did not consider the deadness of Sarah's womb and he did not waver at the promise of God and he was fully convinced. And you read that and say, well, that's a pretty good thing to say about Abraham. But then you look in Genesis and say, well, Lord, are we talking about the same Abraham here? Here, here it's talking about a guy who never wavered and I look back and I read about somebody who wavered a little bit. Here we talk about who was fully convinced and I look and I say, well, yeah, yeah. How convinced was he was he, he, when he went to see Hagar to, 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 to try to go ahead and have a kid some way because they ain't coming from Sarah. Are you with me? So there, there's something that we need to understand about the way God works that God is not going to define you by where you are at the moment or by the mistakes you're making along the way, but that God sees the ultimate end result and he wants to look at you and work with you according to that end result. That's why God corrected Job. That's why God uh, spoke uh, correction to Job because it allowed him to fit 
to what God was defining him to be. God corrects you for the purpose of bringing you along so that you look more like his definition of you. Hallelujah. So that you look more like the finished product that he sees. Hallelujah. Is it any wonder that the scripture reveals about God in Romans 4, 17, that he's the God who raises the dead and calls the things that are not as though they were? Hallelujah. Do you see something about the way God works here today? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad about that? That you're not being judged according to where you are. I mean, God's got expectations of you. He loves you too much to leave you that way. But ultimately, he's always working with you and always bringing you along because he doesn't want you to get stuck where you are today. He wants you to ultimately look like that finished product, that thing that he sees because he can already see the end. You haven't been there yet. You haven't traveled that far down the road yet, but he's already been there. Come on, somebody. I think of Gideon. Huh? Here he is. He's... Threshing wheat in the wine press, hiding from the Midianites who are out to get the people of Israel. So he's in the middle of hiding when an angel appears to him and says, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. How many of you ever got called a mighty person of valor when you were out hiding somewhere and hiding from the enemy? That, that don't sound like valor. But that says something about the way that God conceives is that God's not looking at you based on the, the moment and the way you are at the moment. God's speaking to what he sees inside of you that is the finished product. And he says, God's talking to you like what you can be and not just where you at. Hallelujah. And I want to close with this. Why don't you go to 2 Samuel 9? I made reference to... Uh, Mephibosheth uh, earlier in the message, but I want to just uh, make a reference here now. This is one of the most amazing examples of how the king can define you in a way that is so very different from the way you've defined yourself. And so many of us, we've defined ourselves in so many different ways. And according to things that we thought about ourselves and things that other people have said about us. But here's such a beautiful illustration about how the king's word about you can trump your view of yourself and anybody else's view of you. We find out earlier in the book of 2 Samuel that uh, Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, who was the, and Jonathan was the son of King Saul. So this is Saul's grandson. Now remember that David and Jonathan had a covenant together. So here in 2 Samuel 9, uh, God's, uh, I mean, uh, David is looking for anybody who's left over of the family of Saul and Jonathan. Because he wanted to show kindness to them because of the covenant that he made with Jonathan. Even though Saul was already dead, Jonathan's already dead. Is there anybody left? Because I made a covenant and I want to honor that covenant. And I want to show kindness on, on behalf of that covenant. And uh, so there's this servant, uh, Ziba, and he's first introduced here in uh, verse 2. And uh, Ziba was a servant of the house of Saul. And he said, oh, yeah, there's somebody left. And he's over in a town called Lodabar. And his name is Mephibosheth. He was uh, Jonathan's son. And, uh, uh, the, the, of course, the story is that, you know, when, when Saul got killed and Jonathan got killed, the, the nurse picked up Mephibosheth and started running because she didn't want him to be next. And so as a five-year-old little boy, the nurse dropped him in the middle of running, and he became lame. And now, Mephibosheth is called before the king. And so here's the thing. Uh, I mean, King Saul, his reign is over. So what's going on in Mephibosheth's mind? He might be thinking, oh boy, I'm being called in. This might be the end of me. Because, uh, you know, from, from what you can tell, he's not even aware of the fact that there was a covenant between David and Jonathan. So he comes in and look what he says in verse 8. Actually, first of all, go to verse 7 so that you can see the intent of the king. Verse 7, David said to him, do not fear for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Verse 8, then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? So here's the king 
saying, I want to restore to you all the land of your grandfather. I want you to eat bread at my table continually. But they're still inside of him the way he's defined himself as being lame all his life, being in hiding all his life. Because if they were out for his grandfather and they were out for his father, then they're probably going to be out for me too. That was his thinking. He said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? But it's interesting. Over in verse 10, the king says, right at the end of verse 10, uh, he said, but Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. And then look at verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. And I want you to get this picture here. Here's Mephibosheth before the king defining himself as a dead dog. I mean, not even a dead person. You'd have a little more dignity if you defined yourself as a dead person, a person who was as good as dead. He not only defined himself as good as dead, he called himself a dog. But what did the king say? The king said, he's going to eat continually at my table and be counted just like one of the king's kids. So can I say to somebody today, That you might have thought yourself to be the dead dog. You might have thought of yourself to be however you thought about yourself. Due to the experiences of life. Due to how you may have been abused. Or in his case, how he was dropped. How somebody who intended to do him good actually did him harm. But whatever the background and whatever the, the, the setting of your life that has led you up to where you're at today. I want you to know that in light of the king's word, it don't mean anything. In light of the king's word, only one thing matters, that the king has invited you to eat at his table and to be just like one of his kids. Will you take the king's offer today and would you set aside the previous way you've defined yourself and let God define you? Hallelujah. Amen. Glory to God. Let us pray today. Father, we honor you. We give you glory. I thank you for moving in the house, moving in the hearts of people.